Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. This is your source for candid conversations on arts and culture. Um, today, um, I'm speaking with a guest a, a, who's a natural storyteller. For the past 14 years, he's gotten to tell the story of the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, home of the largest collection of toys, dolls, games, and video games in the world. Uh, he holds a bachelor's degree in history and a master's degree in journalism. He's the senior director of public relations at the uh, Strong, uh, at the Strong, let's call it the Strong. Um, please welcome Shane Reinwald. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be talking to you today, Rob. Likewise, likewise. Um, happy to start this off, and uh, um, I think I think this is going to be fun, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. As I was sharing a little bit before we got started, um, so I think starting off, uh, I like to you know really do that introductory sort of questions before we get too deep in <laughs> it. And I and I gave literally the kind of cut and paste bio, but. If you will, could you share like the, the, the your story? Could you share your story? And I got a few bullet points under there and sub bullet points, but I want to at least open it up for that. So if you could share your story, um, please. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that word story because for me, that's sort of been the thread, the theme throughout my entire life. So I've always been a storyteller ever since I was the littlest of kids. I had stories about dragons and knights sort of pouring out of my head, that creative energy. In third grade, I tried to write the next great fantasy novel. Did not work out for me. Not a famous author. Um, but that always carried through. And I was also a big fan of history, sort of that story of us as people. How did, how did we get to where we are today? Both what are the triumphs of humanity? What are the many, many terrible mistakes we've made along the way? But how have we as people arrived at this point? And so that really led me to the history degree that you mentioned earlier, undergrad. And then I went into journalism because that then became the way for me to tell a story, to tell a story about people. And of course, that's always a natural segue into public relations. And I think public relations sometimes has that sort of corporate, sterile mm -hmm. association. People think of it as, okay, you're a, you're a spokesperson for this big company and you say, buy more toothpaste, that's important. Yeah. But when you work in a museum like the Strong National Museum of Play, that's all about how play reflects our culture, what are the things that we all love that sort of have this universal appeal, who are the people that made these, made these things, what are some of the stories that have gotten brushed to the side that we can now tell about the people that have created these things and influenced our lives. So that idea of a storyteller that we've been talking about, it's kind of come full circle. And now that's my job at the museum is what are the new collections items? What are the amazing artifacts that people don't know that we have and the people behind them? What are the exhibits? Why is play itself important? Right. That's, that's great. It's, it's great to be able to have that as a mission. I would imagine it, it's fun. And, um, and I have some questions related to that later, but I want to, uh, step back a little bit and, um, ask about like for you growing up, what sticks out for you in terms of play where you, you know, you mentioned, uh, like storytelling and, and, and that is a piece. And I kind of relate to that as well, but also what sorts of play were you engaged in? Was it video games? Was it toys? And if so, which ones? So I was a big outdoor play. I loved, um, kind of free roaming, I don't know. I think things maybe have changed as far as parenting. I'm the parent of a three-year-old now, and I'm, I don't want to be that helicopter parent, but I'm a little bit of that, ooh, don't go near the road. Don't do this. But I remember back in my days, you know, late 80s, early 90s, kind of 
hopping on a bike with a group of friends and heading out across the neighborhood, going up into the woods behind our house and playing. And there was a role-playing element to that too. We loved to, you know, build forts and pretend that we were defending a castle against the enemy and things like that. So that was always a big part of it. And I was a gamer growing up as well. I have a lot of fond memories of um, the Nintendo systems, the Super NES and the 64 and playing those and kind of a, as those consoles evolved, I lost track of that a little bit um, kind of post-college and with the professional career, but yeah. definitely in my teen and even early 20 years, gaming was a, a big part of what I did. And that's a, another story that we tell at the museum because it's had such a huge impact on the way that people play for the last, you know, 40 plus years. So in, in your role, you know, in sort of this uh, public relations and media relations and storytelling on average, and this may be you know more complicated than I would, would would hope, but what does a typical day look like for you? And maybe the answer is there are no typical days. Uh, yeah, but... you, you probably get that a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, there are a lot of ebbs and flows, and it, it does depend on what the stories are, what's happening. So I get to be very responsive to the other teams at the museum. Sort of, I am their service center. So if our collections team says, we just acquired this amazing collection from this trailblazer in the video game industry. We want to announce that. Then I get to jump on that project. And how do we tell this story? What are the interesting snippets? What's the bigger kind of tale? Yeah. Um, just as an example of what a, a crazy day for me can look like. So a few days ago, we announced our National Toy Hall of Fame finalists. So that's a big program that we have at the museum. It just lets us talk broadly to a national, international audience about why are toys important? What are the, the best toys of all time? What makes a toy good? What what are those toys that sort of bring us all together that we all have multi-generations of people that have played with? Um, so we announced that and had huge fanfare and working with you know CNN to get them materials in the Today Show. And so that for me is sort of a, a big, big busy but fun day. Yeah. They're not all like that, but. <laughs> so was there, and, and having the, and I think you touched on it a, a little bit. So if, if you have, I uh, hope you don't mind kind of restating or adding a little extra depth to it. Was there any like life experiences? And I would imagine growing up, um, you know, it, it impacts it, but there aren't any life experiences that help shape your creative sensibility, having these sorts of interests in, in storytelling, having this sort of interest in, in play overall, or having even an interest in like history and, and journalism, because in describing it, I could see those kind of intersections and those kind of like how they point together. But, but tell me about that. So for me, I have this really distinct memory when I was little. I mean, I was preschool age, maybe four-ish, a little under, where I was sitting at the kitchen table with my mother, and I had all of these all of these stories about dragons and knights and different things that were sort of pouring out of my head, but I didn't know how to write them down. And I I could do the illustrations. I wanted to draw all of the pieces. But I remember my mom sitting there, and this was, you know, several nights, and she would write them down, and then I would illustrate after, and then we would put the yarn in, and at the end of it, I would have my own book that I had created. And I remember being just so proud of that. And now as a parent of a three-year-old, I yeah. look back and go, that's, that's a lot to sit there and have somebody dictate a story to you and to just write it down and have that sort of patience. 
And I, I always look at that as a moment where that could have gone the other way. She could have been too busy. I, my hand is cramping. I don't want to sit here and write for two straight hours. And I can imagine sort of like how that might have dampened that spirit, but instead it, that it sort of ballooned from that point forward. Yeah, it's like, hey, scribe, I need you. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Please get your pen and ink out. And <laughs> Take a note, scribe. <laughs> yes, your, little, your lord. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what, what sorts of tools do you utilize in sort of this marketing and storytelling that have been really effective um, for um, promoting like exhibitions or getting a word out and a message out around exhibitions and bringing bas- basically awareness to specific exhibitions, but awareness to the the museum overall? Sure. So the museum does have a, a bigger marketing team that does paid advertising and all of that um, good stuff. But what I've really enjoyed doing more lately is not necessarily that long form storytelling, um, you know, the press releases and the here's all of the information, mm-hmm. but those short snippet stories that you could tell, whether that's through video on social media, but those little small bites that make people, it piques their interest. Oh, that's, I didn't know about that person. I didn't know that they had invented that. I didn't know the yeah. story of that. And, oh, now I can learn more about that, plus additional things at this exhibit or at the museum. And that's definitely been super effective. And it's also changed sort of my view of how to tell a good story. Because mm. from the beginning, it was writing. Like, I love short stories and novels. I was telling you about, you know, trying to write a novel in third grade that didn't pan out so well. But a story doesn't have to be long form. A story yeah. can be told in 15 seconds if you do it effectively. If you have a hook, if you have an interesting character if you have a, a factoid that people are gonna it's gonna resonate with people yeah i it's a show that i watch i think it's called uh two sentence horror stories and mm. it, it's it's kind of that and even changing because that's that's one of the things that i'm really interested in kind of changing how we view all of it like blow it all up and let's let's really revise it so you know, I've had this podcast described as anthropology by some people or storytelling and kind of uh, and document and documentary and all these these different things. And I have to think about it as more than a, than a podcast. There's some attention there and there is a def- an effectiveness there and a, a certain angle that and I think what you were describing a moment ago that really resonates with me is I bet you guys didn't know this. You know, yeah. d- the did you knows. And that that's really what, what interests me because I try to go into every conversation and I, I position myself and I think of myself as a facilitator for storytelling. Like you guys, are, as the guests are coming on telling the story, I'm just kind of molding it in a certain way, curating it in a certain way. But being able to do that sort of did you know thing and coming into every conversation with a, a fair amount of like intellectual curiosity that that's what kind of makes I think the conversations interesting and rich. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of what you're doing. And now I have ideas kicking around in my head about hmm, maybe we should have some kind of podcast about the play podcast. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I might know a podcast. I might know. About it. Uh, <laughs> so, what would you say um, are? I, I, and I might modify this question a little bit, but um, what would you say are? the key elements of great storytelling and I know effectiveness is one and that, that is probably like up there, like 
have you thought this through, you know, kind of, kind of, but, um, what are the key elements of great storytelling? And what would you say your number one storytelling tip is? So for me, I always look for the people, the interesting people that have sort of moved and shaped and in the case of the museum, the world of play, the world of toys, the world of video games, and something that's becoming um, increasingly important in the museum world. And I think we all across the museum world need to do better at it and continue to do better at it is to tell the stories of the people that, you know, the stories got pushed to the side for whatever reason throughout history, the, the lesser known stories, sure, um, which could be everything from, in the video game industry, not just telling the story of the biggest players in the industry, but the smallest players in the industry as well. Everybody knows Nintendo and Sony and Microsoft, but who are the other ones? But it's also the individuals who, you know, may have gotten marginalized or pushed to the edges for whatever reason. We have at the museum a really interesting exhibit on women in the video game industry as an example, because um, often thought of as a, a very male-driven domain, certainly in the early industry, not a lot of representation across all groups as far as who was making games, who was designing games, who was creating games. But there were so many stories in there that people don't know of um, women in the industry that were were designers that created games that, you know, we would tell the story and people go, oh, I didn't know that she made that game. I yeah. play, I played that in the late 70s and it was my favorite arcade game. So not that, you know, not that I take credit, like we get to tell the story that no one else is telling, like certainly others are, but to, to be a part of that is gratifying to, to have somebody say, oh, I didn't know that. I, I hadn't heard of, but she changed the industry or this person yeah. changed the industry. It's it's important to have some of those things sort of sort of baked in, like you know. And again, that's why I think with how I describe what I'm doing is facilitating that. It's just like this is the version of the interview that I want to do. You know what I mean? And or the version of the story that I want to come out. And I always joke with people. It's like if you want to get on here and talk about He Man for an hour, we can talk about He Man for an hour. You know, <laughs> go Battle Cat and Orco. Have yeah, you, but, <laughs> and 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 I, and I would imagine there is a fair amount of interest in those kind of like, let's get to the other level. What was the thinking that went into some of these things, some of these things that we love? Like um, what comes to mind for me is the toys that made us and, you know, those different documentaries around like cartoons or even the video game documentary that was on Netflix. Yeah, that showcase how the. Yeah. And that's something that we as a museum love to collect. So we have the objects you know, the masters of the universe toys and yeah. toys from the eighties and going back. But when we can get our hands on the archival documents, the the personal notebooks of the people that created it, the prototypes, and we can tell that story of how that came about, sort of the creative inventive energy behind it. And sometimes it's that great creative story of somebody had an idea. Um, Elf bears an example credited with creating the first home console video game system and just an amazing story of somebody whose family fled Nazi Germany. He came to America. Um, he was working in the, I believe, the defense industry for a while. And then he was on a, I always forget if it was a bus or a train, but he was just riding along on his way home. And the idea of, huh, what if we connected a video game to our TV and we could play it in our own house? Like the fact that nobody had thought of that prior and now it's just 
so universal. Oh yeah, yeah, you can play a game. Like it's just such an amazing creative story. And then there are the ones that are, you know, the stories of how something came about and it was somebody had an idea and somebody stole the idea and somebody sued somebody and they're they're sort of less of that yeah. American dream creative spark of genius moment and more of the okay, well, that's unfortunate, but that's a part of the history of it too. Yeah, um, I, I uh, one thing that always sticks out is the the, the Masters of the Universe story, or even the Transformer story. I was like, oh, this was just to sell more toys, or this cartoon, or what have you, or yeah, I don't care if it's to scale. Put a saddle on that on that tiger, or what have you. This is what we're doing, right? And just just <laughs> hearing the, for yeah. advertising, yeah, and just and just hearing the the story that goes along with some of these things. It, it is enthralling. It's like I could do a whole season with like the one dude that was responsible for making um, even something to, like the movie ones. Right. Like even something like the guy that made the T-Rex walk in the first like Jurassic Park. I could watch him for like a four episode arc. So that kind of sort of minutia of these are the things that I love and how can I learn more and do a more comprehensive sort of deep dive in it. Those are the things that really interest how it me. came about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the great thing about the museum. Even for me, like there's just so much nostalgia in these toys. And I have a personal interest in knowing these stories too. So then to get to figure out how to encapsulate that story and tell it to other people is kind of a dream come true. Yeah. Um, I did a, a movie review um, of <laughs> this is so stupid, but I did a movie review of um, the first two Ninja Turtles movies from the nineties. And uh I have some of the old figures like in my creative like alter <laughs> area. So I'm doing terribly dubbed voices and it's like two Leonardo's talking to each other. One is a pop, one is an action figure. And it's like, Hey, Leonardo, what Leonardo? Are you going to listen to this <laughs> new episode of, I was like, this is terrible, but it, it was like me going back into play. So, which is a segue. It's a, it's a haphazard segue, but a segue nonetheless. So despite working at the strong, the strong, it isn't just all play. You know, um, obviously there's work getting done. So how do you make work feel like play? Like, I'm very interested in that kind of juxtaposition. Like, you're in a place that has play in the title, but you're working at a place. So how do <laughs> but you... I don't get to play at arcade machines all day and, yeah. uh, and drop tokens into the pinball machines. Well, I think um, it, it's sort of the higher level about the museum. Um, so we are, as a museum, super interactive, and you can't be a museum about play without letting families come and play and run around. But we do sort of underneath that all have really serious academic underpinnings. So we publish a peer reviewed journal about play that talks about what is play? Why is play important? Um, You know, we have the collections items that we interpret and we tell those stories. So you can look at the first um, handmade prototype Monopoly set, and then you can go and play a version of, you know, many of your favorite board games that are oversized. So that's the interesting thing about what we do is we do we do bring work and seriousness to a subject that's fun and whimsical. Yeah. And then day to day for me, yeah, there's there's paperwork. There are certainly things like in any job where it's I don't necessarily want to be doing this right now. It's not the most <laughs> exciting part about my day. But the nice thing is that there are those moments where, you know, I'm working with media on a story and we're sort of in the depths of the museum in the vault and we're shining the spotlight on some really cool artifact. And those are the moments where, okay, this is actually fun and playful and work can be play. That's fantastic. 
Uh, so I got I got two more real questions, and then I got a few rapid fire questions for you. So before we get to the rapid fire ones, let's let's get the the, the let's get the real let's get the vegetables out of the way before we get to the dessert. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so how does the museum source its collections and its its um, exhibits and all of that stuff? How does the sourcing go? Yeah, so we're interesting as far as a collecting museum. Lots of museums collect things that there may not be that many of. They may be so old that there are only certain ways to source them. If you're an art museum and you're looking for art from ancient China, there's only so many places that's sort of floating around and so many auction houses that have that. But we're in the business of toys, both older toys, but toys that are being made today. So there's a little bit of that element of constantly collecting, figuring out what's being brought to market today that in a hundred years might be important to a scholar or relevant or tell us something about our culture. So we have to be very forward thinking on that. Um, but as far as where we get things, if it's something that we just need an example of that's kind of every day and there's a million in the world, that might come from eBay or someplace <laughs> online. <laughs> if it's something that there's only one of, then we may acquire that from the person that has it. Um, sometimes things will go for auction. Mm-hmm. Like we did acquire the only prototype Monopoly set in the entire world that was in the Steve Forbes personal collection and went up for auction. So that was one of those moments of, okay, Monopoly is hugely important. It's a board yeah. game that everyone recognizes. It's sort of a part of American culture and fabric and tells us a fairly interesting story about capitalism as well yeah <laughs> capitalism uh, is fun <laughs> yeah i all of your friends even though yes. the story from that is that it um, was based on a game that was the opposite that was supposed to be about the sort of the ills of um the people the re- renting and landlords and them making the money and pressuring everybody else so it was supposed to teach people that this is not good. And then it somehow morphed in the Great Depression into, well, you don't have money now, but wouldn't it be fun to bankrupt your friends because you're in your personal life, you are struggling. So again, back to the interesting stories. <laughs> Way to do a rebrand, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so this this is the last one. Um, and, I, and I think I got a good sense on some of the skills that that you're using in your, in your work. So are there any ones that you feel like you want to highlight, feel free to. So um, as a public relations like like manager, director, well, director of public relations uh, for the museum, um, which skills do you rely on most and which skills are you still developing and which part of your job like su- su- surprises you? Yeah, I think what surprised me, well, not necessarily surprised me, but what was different from what I was used to. So from you know, the storytelling background that we've been talking about in journalism, the the writing side of things, the talking to people kind of one-to-one and offline mm. I had down. But when you jump into a role like this, you have to sometimes jump in front of a camera, sometimes jump on Zoom like this and have a conversation. <laughs> and that was something that I had not had a lot of experience with that, um, you know, there was a little bit in the back of my mind. Sometimes the writing process is pretty introverted. You're, you don't have to talk to people. You can turn the lights off in your office and type away. But how how do I take that storytelling and do it sort of in a verbal way? And and that for me, when I made the transition from journalism to PR, was something that was new. And 
I think I've hopefully developed those skills over the last 14 years, but it's it's one that's definitely always a work in progress because there's still that little part in the back of my head that was the the introverted writer that's like, wait, are we talking right now? What are we <laughs> <laughs> Is everything coming out of your mouth okay? You could have probably written this so much better. I, I have that on occasion too, and doing uh I've been podcasting for 13 years, almost 14. And when I do more kind of public facing things, I'm like, oh right. I'm in front of people. So I should You're like probably... now they're looking at me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and and the thing is, like, um, people are really surprised when they see me in person because I'm six four. So it's like I can't hide either. So it's like, uh, just is there a huge monopoly like metal dog that I can hide behind? That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the podium's not gonna help you if you're presenting in front of um, so, so those are actually the, the real questions. Um, so if you're ready to rock and roll on these rapid fire questions, we can do it. Um, right, I'm ready. This is the part where that, see that old introverted writer part of my brain. is like, uh Oh, rapid fire. Yeah. So as I always tell people, don't overthink it, don't overthink it, overthink it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, brevity is key here. Um, uh, what do you collect in your own personal like life? Whiskey. Is that okay to say on here? <laughs> nice. Any particular kind? I like scotch because uh, my wife and I, we went on our honeymoon and we've been back a few times. I have some some heritage, Scottish heritage in the family. And I don't know, just connected with it. So, and I should put out there, these aren't like the multi-hundred dollar bottles. They're the more of the entry level, but. I dig it. I dig it. I'm, I have I'm them a, on hand. <laughs> I'm, I'm a scotch guy as well. So, so shout out oh, to great. you. Right? All right. See? Yeah. And I have a lot of books too. I mean, that goes hand in hand with. I have a lot of DVDs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a lot of like just dead tech, uh, but it's something, it's something about the tones, man. It's a warmer feel when you have something in your hand. It's nice to have. Yeah. It's nice to have something, not just my streaming library or catalog. Yeah. Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, or Stranger Things. If there was only one that you could watch the rest of your days, which one would it be? Oh, wow. This is. I know. So I should say I watch all of them and love all of them and I'm. I haven't started House of Dragon, the spinoff of Game of Thrones, but I've started the other Lord of the Rings um, Amazon series. I know. I might go Stranger Things right now, though. I just, Mm -hmm. it's just the 80s nostalgia is such a. Child of the 80s. It's just, it's just right there. It's just like, and it kind of leans into some of all of of the other things that are there. Like the the fantasy elements are there. Um, Some of the gaming stuff. It's just like. I could actually have been one of those kids. Yeah. I think yeah. that's when you can put yourself in those shoes. You're like, okay, yeah. I'm on my bike and I'm, you know, going through the neighborhood yeah. on my way to fight some demonic. I, I think I'm actually the Demogorgon though. I think that's actually what's happening. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm mind flare is fine. At least you admit it, right? You know, you know your role. I own it. I own it. Um, Describe the biggest perk of your, your your job, of either working where you're at or what your role is, but what is the biggest perk of doing what you do? I think it's meeting all sorts of amazing people, both um, in terms of people in the media and in, in the industry. <clears throat> I've had the privilege of meeting designers and inventors and folks that have sort of changed and shaped the course of play. And then just every day, um, getting to work across all the teams of the museum, not just kind of sitting in the silo and doing one thing, but saying, hey, what do you guys have that's new? What do you have that's new? What can we talk about? Yeah. And sort of getting it right from the experts and the sources. It's pretty crisp. Uh, here's the last one. I wanted to save this one because I think it really ties everything and it would lead into some of the shameless plugs I like to wrap up on. But uh, <laughs> if one is a per- if a person only has one hour to spend at the museum, 
at, 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 at this current stage, what would you recommend that they check out? What would you recommend that they see? They have one hour. That's just a tight hour. That's a tight hour. 59 minutes, 59 seconds. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what would you recommend? If it's an adult visitor or an adult group that, you know, isn't necessarily going to want to play as a family, we actually have a, a tour called our must 12 musty artifact tour that takes about an hour, kind of an audio tour that takes you through the 12 things that once you walk out the door, you can say, wow, I can't believe I saw X, Y, and Z. And that has on it that first prototype monopoly set we were talking about. It mm-hmm. has on it some of the earliest video game systems. We have one of the first handmade um, jigsaw puzzles from the late 1700s. So the kind of things that you would say, I couldn't see that anywhere else. I'm glad I got to see that. You know, if you, if you go to the Louvre, you want to see the Mona Lisa. If you go to here, you want to see this. Well, for us, we don't have those things, but you can see the first Monopoly set you can see. So I, w- I would recommend picking that tour up and moving quickly. It's a big space. No, I appreciate that. I, I, um, I think, you know, really trying to like capitalize and not to monopolize on your time. I realized how corny that sounded at the end. Uh, <laughs> well, you're trying to capitalize. It was on a perfect. The, <laughs> well, you're trying to capitalize on making the most of your your time. I think having a few places that are like these are the showstoppers. Everything is great here, but this is definitely for that first introductory trip. You got to go. You got to check this out, and then you're going to get drawn back in. Plan your next two trips, but that first yeah. we definitely and have then, to see this. And then come back and bring the full family and spend half a day or a full day. Yeah. Play your way through the history of video games, drop some tokens and some pinball machines. That's fantastic. So that's pretty much all I have um, for today. So I want to um, thank you for coming on to this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of fun. Absolutely. And um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where the listeners to uh, to check out um, the Strong Museum, uh, to check out you on social media, all of that good stuff. The floor is is yours. Sure. So museumplay.org is our website. It has tons of information about the museum and exhibits and all of the collections items that we've been talking about. We also have the National Toy Hall of Fame, which I had mentioned um, way earlier in the podcast and the World Video Game Hall of Fame as well. So those are two programs uh, that really let us tell that story to a bigger audience about these play things and how they've shaped our lives. And you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, all of those fun things um, at Museum of Play. Well, there you have it, folks. I want to, again, thank Shane Reinwald from the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there is play in and around your neck of the woods. You just got to look for it. 